Let us pray. As we approach your word, O God, open our hearts and our minds to hear you. Enable us to hear your good news, which is both ancient and always true. The first reading today comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And we are using scholar Robert Alter's translation. When God began to create heaven and earth, and the earth then was welter and waste and darkness over the deep and God's breath hovering over the waters, God said, let there be light. And there was light. The second reading today is the eighth Psalm using our new revised standard version translation. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have founded a bulwark because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? Yet you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under their feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. At one point in its history, the public record of the National Academy for Sciences included this policy statement. Religion and science are separate and mutually exclusive realms of human thought whose presentation in the same context leads to misunderstanding for both scientific theory and religious belief. So when would you guess that was written and adopted? I conducted an incredibly unofficial, unscientific survey of 10 friends. The latest year any of the 10 guessed was 1931. What do you think? It was 1981. The policy statement declaring science and religion to be mutually exclusive is younger than I am. And within the last 10 years, the Barna Group, a Christian polling firm, they surveyed young adults and found that one in four reported they had been taught 
or had experienced the church as being anti-science. The church, whose scripture, whose sacred text, whose authoritative book quite literally begins and ends with creation. Now, at the risk of stating the obvious, I am standing before you in a preaching robe, not a lab coat. My academic credentials are in creative writing and theology. I survived AP chemistry in high school, but in college, I was required to take only one science course, and I enrolled in a class called Physics for Everyone. My final project was a paper exploring the scientific principles found in the classic children's book, Corduroy the Bear. It is more ridiculous than it sounds, which is saying something. And I am right this moment realizing that my parents, who worship with us on the live stream, and who graciously and generously paid my college tuition have just heard about that for the very first time. I'm so sorry. So I have endeavored mightily with this sermon to avoid speaking too far outside my own understanding. I am tempted to say that you called me to be your pastor because of my theological mind, not my scientific mind. But even that phrasing perpetuates what has become a harmful and even unfaithful dichotomy. If we claim to follow Jesus, we are bound to the greatest commandment, the one we are reading aloud together in this service each week, the command to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. There is no conflict between religion and science. A paper approved by the Presbyterian Church in 1947 affirms this. There is no conflict between religion and science. Each new discovery demonstrates the infinite wisdom, logic, and consistency of the omnipotent creator. The minutes of the 1982 Presbyterian General Assembly state, neither scripture nor our confessions of faith teach the creation of humanity by the direct and immediate acts of God so as to exclude evolution as scientific theory. And we reaffirmed this as recently as 2016, Scientific inquiry continues to provide ever more profound understandings of the scope of God's creation across space and time. And we stand on the shoulders of giants, including John Calvin, arguably the most influential theologian in our Presbyterian history, who back in the 1500s taught that reason, math, and science were gifts bestowed upon us by God, and to not use them would be akin to slapping God in the face. At the same time, though, 
We, the church, have earned some of the skepticism heaped upon us. Because that same John Calvin, along with Martin Luther and the entire Catholic Church for a time, wrote off Galileo and Copernicus as fools and heretics. It would not be until 1992 that Pope John Paul II would lift the Roman Catholic 350-year condemnation of Galileo, saying research performed in a truly scientific manner can never be in contrast with faith because both have their origin in the same God. And last but not least, Bill Brown, recently of Columbia Seminary in Atlanta, he puts it this way. If theology is faith-seeking understanding and science is a form of understanding, then theology has nothing to fear and, in fact, everything to gain by engaging the sciences. Science is no hoax, he says, if the task of theology is to relate the entire world to God, but does not take into account the world as science reveals it to us, then our theology has failed. I suppose that people of faith keep having to say these things because there are other people of faith who insist upon the opposite. That to have adequate faith in God requires us to shun the science rather than celebrate it. But nothing could be further from the truth if we let it. Science will bring us closer to God. We believe that God created the earth and everything in it. Psalm 19 reads, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of God's hands. Have you ever gone to a museum or taken an art history class? If you settle in and you study a painting, just for example, you learn not just about the art itself, you learn about the artist, too. When you examine their handiwork and the techniques that they use and the subjects they focus upon and the perspectives they offer and the materials they employ, all of these things offer insight into who the artist was and what they valued, both when they were holding a paintbrush and when they weren't. Studying creation, exploring the world and the universe with rigorous scientific inquisitiveness can help us come to encounter God even more fully. Our faith, our faith in an incarnate God, a God who came to this earth in the flesh and bone of Jesus Christ, who lived and walked and loved and died and rose again on this earth. Our faith in a God who would go to such lengths tells us that this earth matters deeply. 
Our faith in an incarnate God simply does not allow us to ignore the physical world around us or any of its nuance. Honestly, it's those nuances that expand my faith. Any of you who have felt closer to God by being out in nature, you know something of what I'm saying. Dwelling in creation is to dwell within the creative heart of God. Learning about creation is to learn about the creative heart of God. I do not find any less wonder in a God who creates by crafting the incredibly intricate and involved process of evolution over eons than I do in a God who creates with a word and a whistle in less than a week. If anything, I find it even more astonishing that God could create systems and parameters and conditions and set the whole thing in motion and then end up not only with a complex universe, but even a human race that can see and observe and describe and alter it. Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And who are we that you are mindful of us? Who are we that you care for us? The more I read about atoms and electrons, about quarks and string theory and relativity and the speed of light, the more all of that reminds me of my place in the world, that I am part of the world, not the center of it. Science actually inspires humility, not hubris, as some have accused. Science does not lead us to see ourselves as God. For those who do, there is a problem, but the problem is not science. Science leads us to stand in awe of God. Science taken seriously requires us to acknowledge that we do not and cannot understand everything. And faith taken seriously requires exactly the same. I mentioned Galileo and Copernicus earlier. Their greatest sin was daring to suggest that we revolve around the sun, the S-U-N, rather than the sun revolving around us. And similarly, as people of faith, we do well to remember that we revolve around the sun, the S-O-N, rather than the sun revolving around us. All of this makes me think of my friend, Sarah. Sarah and her husband, they knew long before they were even married that they would need scientific intervention if they were ever to have a child that shared their own DNA. And so they began IVF, meeting with doctors weekly, sometimes daily, enduring procedures and needles and medication over the course of months and months, 
all so that the proper cells could meet one another in a way that allowed them to do what they were created to do, to form and fashion a baby. And every year now, about nine months ahead of her children's birthdays, she shares a photo of two microscopic blobs in a little glass dish. In the photo, they are labeled Attempt One and Attempt Two. Today, they answer to the names of Jacob and Elaine. And every year, she says, it's true, The way that our children came into being was not natural, but it was a miracle. It was the kind of miracle that can only happen when grace and science meet somewhere in the middle. And that's the other thing. Science and faith approached rightly. Each of them leads us toward life. And both the evolution of our voice boxes and the air that God breathed into our lungs means we have voice to proclaim it. The Big Bang Theory tells us that once upon a time, roughly 15 billion years ago, nothing existed except for what scientists call a singularity. And then that singularity exploded for reasons that no one can say for sure, and the universe expanded a trillion, trillion times, curving to such a degree that particles popped out of what scientists call a quantum nowhere. When the universe was one second old, every spoonful of those particles was denser than stone and hotter than the center of the sun. As it expanded, it became matter. And then the temperature dropped and all of those particles began to form together. But the more they came together, the more they warmed up again. And so they began to explode in on themselves. Over and over again, coming together and collapsing in space dust. Coming together and splitting apart. Eventually, after about 10 billion years, everything cooled off enough for the solar system to congeal. The Earth, though, it didn't start out blue and green like we see it to be now. For those colors, it needed life, and for life, it needed water and organic molecules, both of which were delivered to the Earth by comets. Now, the oldest rocks so far discovered on the surface of the Earth are off the coast of Australia, and they date back some 3.8 billion years. And most of them, they look just like old rocks. But a few of them contain fossils of blue-green algae. Those rocks date back 3.5 billion years. So the leap from those plain old rocks to rocks with algae is what no one, so far as I understand it, can fully explain. What we do know is that the sun was exactly where it needed to be for photosynthesis to take place. 
And the rest goes from there. Which means that science tells us in some way or another that we all started out on those rocks. Rocks that were formed from space dust back in the very beginning. And of course, dust is where it all began. Because dust is all that God has ever needed. The quantum dust from which the stars arose, the stardust by which all of those primal elements were sown, the earth dust from which the rocks were made, and the rock dust on which the first creatures grew. Then the Lord God fashioned the human from the dust of the ground and blew into his nostrils the breath of life, and the human became a living being. Faith and science. You don't have to choose one over the other. They coexist beautifully. Which means however you choose to view the world that God created and our place in it, there is ample reason to rejoice and be glad. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.